We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is sponsored by FX's Fleischman is in Trouble. Starring Jesse Eisenberg, Claire Danes, Lizzie Kaplan, and Adam Brody. This drama tells the story of recently divorced Toby Fleischman, who dives into the world of app-based dating with the kind of success he never had in his youth. Then, his ex-wife disappears, leaving him with their two children and no hint of her return. Effects's Fleischman is in trouble. Streaming November 17th, only on Hulu. Cannot be a good writer without, without reading. Being, without, no, right. Exactly. Without being a good reader. Exactly. Right. Without being a good reader. So, I mean, in that respect, like I think that you can learn something about storytelling from every genre. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And yes. so, so I read read widely, but I think that you know that I had to read literary fiction and specifically read literary fiction. Read black literary fiction, read southern literary fiction, read literary fiction by women, right? Read literary fiction by black southern women, right? So I, I, I had to um, read the kind of writing that I was hoping to write, read the kind of stories that I was hoping to tell because I needed models. You know, I needed to figure out what I liked, what I didn't like, you know, in the kinds of stories that I wanted to wanted to write. Jasmine Ward is one of the great writers of our time, a woman with two National Book Awards and a MacArthur Genius Grant. She's the author of Salvage the Bones, Men We Reaped, and Sing Unburied Sing. Her work is extraordinary, and it was an honor to host her in my home and talk to her about how she became a writer and her ideas about writing. It's the great Jasmine Ward on Touré Show. I want to talk a lot with you about writing, but mm-hmm. your personal story is mm-hmm. really interesting and you have so much to overcome just to mm-hmm. get to being a writer. Mm-hmm. You talked about having imposter syndrome at Stanford. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you deal with that? How did you feel and how did you persevere? Uh, I felt awful. I think, I think, and I think part of the reason that that I had imposter syndrome was because of the experiences you know, that I had while I was in high school, right? Where here I am going to this like private, really small private high school, but where most of the students, you know, like damn near all the students are white. You know, they come from, they come from money, right? They've been raised their entire lives to think that of course they're going to go to college and they're going to get into a good college too, right? A good university. And so when I was like applying for schools and getting into some schools that they weren't, 
getting into. Um, you know, I heard like really ugly things from some of them, right? You, so you're just getting in because of affirmative action, right? Like you don't actually deserve to go. And I and I carried some of that with me, right? You when I, some of that. yeah, I did. I totally did. And so then when I went to Stanford, like I believe that part of the reason that I was there was because, you know, like I was like, yeah, I was a great fit as far as like affirmative action went. And so, um, and so I was. I remember being really nervous about taking my first creative writing course and I put it off like I was interested in my first year my freshman year I didn't take one right and then I think that I might have taken my first one in my second year right my first workshop and I'd never been in a creative workshop writing workshop before and um and and uh and it was and I mean I loved it but I was also it seemed to confirm some of my like worst suspicions about Stanford, about my place at Stanford. I mean, because these children, you know, these kids had gone to like really great schools. You know, they'd been prepared for this. Some of them had even taken writing workshops. They were really well read. Um, and, uh, and they were confident, you know, they knew that they deserved to be there. And, and they were, um, you know, and that, and that confidence, you know, most of them were really talkative and just assertive in class. And I was the exact opposite of all of that, right? And the whole time I'm in the class, I'm thinking, God, I haven't read as much as, you know, I haven't read anywhere near close to the amount of books I need to read to be in this classroom. I haven't written as much. I'm just, I, you know, like these people know what they're doing and I have no idea. And so I, you know, I took the first workshop at the end of it, my first fiction workshop still felt like I didn't know what I was doing, but then I thought, okay, maybe I'll take a poetry workshop, like a beginning poetry workshop, because, you know, I feel like no one knows what they're doing in poetry, right? I'm like, okay, maybe everyone else will be as clueless as I am. Um, so I took the poetry workshop. I loved it. True indeed. I felt like everyone else, all, you know, none of the other students knew what they were doing. So it was. I felt like it was a, that was a great experience for me. And then I was accepted into the, uh, like the intermediate workshop. And so I showed up on the first day. It's really small. There's a grad student in it, you know, like a grad student from a different department. They weren't, you know, because Stanford doesn't have an MFA program, but there's a grad student in it. There were like four undergrads, right? The other undergrads, again, are like the most assertive, well-read people. You know, one of the first questions they, that the instructor asked us on the first day was like, so what poets are you reading? And, and just something as simple as that, like that's a very simple question, right? And you think it makes sense to like ask, you know, an intermediate, you know, class what they're reading. But that was too that was too much for me. Like it like having him ask that and then seeing the grad student in the class and hearing the other students be so confident about what they're reading and what they're doing, again, I was like, okay, I don't I'm not I don't have it. You know, like I don't I'm not as well read as these people. I don't I don't have it. And so I actually <laughs> like I dropped the course and did not take a, another creative writing class until my last year at Stanford. Then I took a... Um, what was your major? My I majored in English, but I never... You know, Stanford has a great English department, and they have a great creative writing department, especially now. When I went back as a, as a Stegner, I mean, it's it's amazing, right? Like all the fellow, things... Yeah. yeah, all the things that they do for like undergrads. I mean, there there's a reading series for undergrads. There are multiple contests. There are, you know, these tutorials where as an undergrad you get to work with a Segner fellow. I mean, and I didn't take advantage of any of that stuff because I just suffered from like this 
that crippling idea that I just did not deserve to be there. So how did you get from, I don't deserve to be here, to the confidence to start putting words down? Um, I guess there were two things that happened. So so I took the, um, I did a tutorial with the Stegner Fellow my last year at Stanford. And that was easier for me because it was one-on-one, you know, mm. and... Um, and I wrote both poetry and fiction, like, during that time. And at the end of the tutorial, I asked the Stegner Fellow, and I'm sure they get people, you know, that ask them this all the time, or at least from people like me, right? So I asked, um, you know, the Stegner Fellow that I was working with, I was like, should I continue with this or should I just stop? You know, like, it's, it's I, I think that I wanted her, you know, someone in a position of power and who and this person who I knew, you know, they knew what they were doing, right? So I wanted them to look at my work and tell me, you know, basically give me permission. And she did. She said, no, I think you, you know, like you have something here and I think you should continue to write. It's a big thing. Yeah. You know, I, I remember Toni Morrison talking about wanting that permission, mm-hmm. someone to say. I remember even for myself being college age and saying I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. And this older sister who was sort of in a mentoring role for a lot of us said, no, you are a writer, even though I had published nothing. And that gave me the sense of liberation. Mm -hmm. Why why do, I mean, writing is something that we don't need Mm -hmm. permission to get into, but why Mm. do so many of us feel like (laughs) we need permission to be writers? Or at least the black writers are feeling it. Because I I guess you're saying the white writers are like, yeah. I'll do it if I want to, yeah. but th- so many of us are saying that. I think, you know, I think because in general, like, I mean, what we hear in popular culture about writing and about the profession is that it's really hard to do, you know, like not a lot of people are successful at it. Um, and I don't know, like, I think that makes us like second guess our chances of success. And maybe when we're asking for permission, we're asking someone to to say they think we might be successful at <laughs> you know, at it. Um, I think that was part of what was like underlying my, you know, thoughts when I was like asking that, asking the Stegner fellow that I worked with that question. I mean, you know, the question of how did you learn to write? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's never over. Mm-hmm. You are continuing yes. to study and learn. Yes. But let's, let's break it down. Mm-hmm. Going from basically, let's call it zero, okay. being in the one-on-one class mm-hmm. to being where you were good enough to write a book mm-hmm. that, that you thought, this is good. Mm-hmm. How did you get from that zero to to that point? I mean, I know that some people, uh, some people dislike the idea of writing programs, right? And I, and Big they, debate. Yes, yes, huge debate, right? For me, going to a writing program, I went to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, and there, and that's where I received my MFA. Like that was a good thing because so after I graduated from Stanford, you know, as an undergrad, I went home for six months. That's when my brother died, you know, six or so months, and that's when my brother died. And then, um, you know, I couldn't find a job, uh, and 
you know, I was working in retail, you know, like folding jeans <laughs> to my hands. Were Where? Like at the Tommy Hilfiger outlet, at the Gulfport Outlet Mall. <laughs> yes, it was horrible. Um, and, and just doing holiday work, right? I didn't even get hired on like full time. They just only hired me for holiday work for the, for the Christmas season. So anyhow, so I knew people who knew people who lived here in New York, right? And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go to New York and try to get a job in publishing, right? Because I had another friend who I graduated with from Stanford who knew someone who worked at Random House. So I was like, okay, maybe they can like get my resume into HR and I can just, I, can, I know I can do that with my English degree. That's one thing that I can do. So anyhow, I moved here, um, but it was right after my brother died. And um, and I just, I did a lot of thinking while I was here. You know, like I was, I was very depressed, very depressed. And um, and sort of and struggling with very like fresh grief, I think because of like where I was emotionally and psychologically, I was constantly thinking about you know like my life and what I would do with the life that I had been given, right? And what would make my time here worthwhile? Um, and for me, like like I realized that what I really wanted to do was I wanted to be a writer. Like I didn't want to be a managing editorial assistant, you know, in publishing. I didn't want to work for another media company, you know, in New York City. Like, you know, because I, while I was here, I discovered other options. There were other things that I thought, okay, I know this person, maybe they can get my resume here, maybe I can do that. And then I just, I realized, you know, I just kept thinking about my brother, thinking about, you know, the fact that I could die any day, right? And I, and I was like, you know what, I have, to, I have to try to do this, even though I'm really afraid and I don't know if it will work out, you know, and I, and I, and I realized that I'm not in a position, I, I don't come from a position of privilege because at the time, too, I was acquainted with several people who, you know, came from money you know, and they could afford to take a year off after they graduated from school, work on their great American novel, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, they could do all that, right? Um, But I couldn't. And so I thought, okay, so I want to try to be a writer. I'm going to have to go to a writing. I mean, the only way that I can, that I can possibly do this, because working full time and writing on the side is just, I'm not able to do that. It's too hard for me, very hard. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I will apply to writing programs. So I applied to a whole bunch of writing programs. um, But I ended up getting like, full funding from Michigan and heard from them. They were one of the first schools that I heard from that, you know, that I was accepted. And so I went there and, um, and and it was funny because, you know, here I am when I'm at Michigan, right? So I'm in a workshop, my first workshop uh, as a, as a graduate student. And again, I'm in that kind of situation where even though I, I read a lot when I was living here in New York, I mean, of course, because I was working at a publishing company, right? But I, I, um, so I would just like read the the free book piles, right? And I just read a ton and I would go, I would, <laughs> my friend and I would like take stacks of books off of the free book piles, put them in duffel bags, cart them down to the strand, sell them, and then buy books that we actually <laughs> wanted. <laughs> so I read a lot. So I, I at, you know, at that point when I got to Michigan, so I was here for like two and a half years. And then I went to Michigan. And when I got to Michigan, so I knew that I'd like read more, you know, by that time. Right. Um, but still, I hadn't again, I hadn't hadn't written a lot. So th- for me, it was really a process of like of doing it right of, you know, in, in grad programs, they you know, the emphasis is on the short story. Right. So I'm writing short story after short story after short story. And so at the end of my. I think at the end of my near the end of my first year. 
And that back then, Michigan was only a two-year program. So at the end of my first year, I was like, okay, I only have one more year left. And if I don't write a novel now, I'm never going to write one. Mm. You know, like I'm not going to write one after I get out and I'm back to working full time. Right. Right. So I'm going to write one while I'm here. Right. And I'd only written like, I don't know, maybe six short stories by that time. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to try. I'm just going to do it. And uh, and I started. I started on my first novel. And it's almost as if like the writing of the novel taught me that I could actually write a novel. And of course it wasn't perfect, but I think that, that, that one of the most useful things about that entire experience was that it was that I, it taught me that I could do it. You know, I mean, like I said, it was not a perfect novel at all, but I knew at the end of that, my second year, I was like, huh, so you can do this, you know, like if you stick with it and if you write every day and if, of course, you know, if you're reading, you know, the entire time and like, you know, learning what you like and what you don't like and incorporating that into your work. Then after a year, you know, a, a, or a year and, you know, a few months of like working very steadily on this rough draft, like you can have a complete rough draft of hmm. a novel. Wow. <laughs> um, let's take a step back. Okay. Because um, you talk about the death of Joshua, mm-hmm. your brother, and that story is at the center of Men We Reaped. Mm-hmm. Um, but his passing had a huge impact on you yeah. as a person, obviously, mm-hmm. and as a writer. Yeah. Um, can you talk about how that experience transformed your work and your approach to writing? Well, I think, um, I think my brother's death, like a lot of people ask me, like, like they assume that I needed a certain amount of confidence in order to get where I got, but I, I don't, it doesn't seem, I don't think, it, I don't think that that's the case. Like, I think that a certain, there was a certain amount of like, of desperation that drove me and not only like desperation because, because I felt like, you know, like I had like there was this language inside of me. There were stories inside of me that I wanted to put down on paper. Um, so I was like desperate to get those out, right? And to, and to ideally one day share those stories with people, right? But I think, that, but I think that part of the desperation too was that, was that um, like I was constantly thinking about time and about the fact that we're not guaranteed time. And, you know, because my brother died when he was 19, I thought, well, you know, I mean, who knows if I'll even make it to 30, right? Who knows if I'll make it to 25? Like, you know, because, because you know, I'm not promised anything. Um, you know, my brother, I mean, he didn't do anything to die. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Car crash. Yeah, a car crash. He was hit from behind by a drunk driver, like, so, could have been anybody. Yeah, could have been yeah. anybody. Right. So, so that um, I think that 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 also like fueled that sense of like desperation. Like I was desperate to succeed. I think, and so that drove. I think that that desperation informed my work ethic. You know, like it made me develop a work ethic. It made me. You know, it was so funny because, you know, after our workshops, a lot of, you know, after our fiction workshops. Everyone in the class would go, you know, we'd go with the instructor, we'd go get a drink, right? And we'd end up, being, you know, hanging out at the bar for a long time. And and I remember in my second year, I stopped doing it as much. In my first year, I would, you know, I'd go, I'd socialize, I'd talk and stuff like that. My second year, when I was working on my, on my novel, 
I just stopped. I'd be like, oh, okay, I, you know, I'd like to go with y'all, but I can't. I have to go home and work. You go home and work on your book. Yeah, and I'd go home and I'd work on my book, <laughs> my bad book, but I'd go home and I'd work on my book. And 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 um, because you, know, you need the time. Yeah, you to need the work time on your book exactly. And, and quite often, as writers, we can get that time by taking away from social things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's what I did. You know, and it taught me that like that that writing was something that I had to do every day, you know, or five days a week. But it's something that I had to do five days a week, something I had to that had to be steady about because because I, I, I feel like I struggle with so much like anxiety and depression and also, you know, that feeling of like desperation. Like if I feel like I'm the type of person who. I don't know who like who doesn't. Um, like who, because I'm dealing with all these emotions, these sort of darker emotions, I'm not the type to have like inspiration strike and to, you know what I'm saying? Like if I were to wait on inspiration to strike, I would never write anything because I'm usually, I'm usually like over here that like the darker emotion, you know what I'm saying? I'm struggling with darker emotions. And I had, I feel like in some ways, maybe I had to separate writing from my feelings about writing. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like I had to say, okay, my feelings about writing are fine and I'm allowed to have those feelings about writing, but my writing needs to be something that, that I do. It needs to be a part, it needs to be a part of my routine. You know, like it needs to, it, I mean, it's not, it's not a job, but it needs to be something. So you formalized like, it within yes. your own. So did you say, okay, mornings, three hours, evenings, two hours? Like yeah. what did you, what did you I, structure? In school, I would, I was, I'm a night owl. Um, and so I'd work at night, you know, I'd sit down at like after I ate dinner, like 8 p.m. And I just write, you know, um, you know, sometimes until 10, sometimes later. Um, yeah. So that's what I did in school. Um, and then even after school, you know, once I was working, you know, again, teaching. Right. That's when I started teaching after I graduated from uh, Michigan. Again, it's something that I would do in the evenings. But now that I have kids, <laughs> um, it's something now that I do in the morning mm. because that's you You're know too tired at night. Yeah, I'm too tired at night. I'm just exhausted. I just want to. I mean, I, I'm I'm up. I'm I'm not the mom, <laughs> so there's different roles yes. respect to that yes. and the difficulty of being a mom. I find with the kids, mm -hmm. nighttime is very fertile. Really, right? Like like the day is over, nothing is happening. Like mm -hmm. the morning, we got to like. Yeah. Move and groove, get to school yeah. or camp. But yeah. like in the evening, we put them in bed, like relax. Okay, yeah. Now I can work for yeah. three, four or five hours, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that you get it done in the morning yeah. <laughs> with the little kids. Yeah. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. 
one of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. You have a 10-month-old. I have a 10-month-old. And, well, I mean... <laughs> that's That's been quite a disruptor for your writing, yes, hasn't it been? it has. It has. Yeah. Um, yes. But I'm hoping, you know, in the next year... Well, I mean, once I'm done with tour, I can't... I know some writers who can write on tour. Oof. I can't do that. But I know, like, Nikki Finney, she can write... She writes on tour. She writes... She gets up at, like, 4.30 and writes every I mean, morning. <laughs> I mean, I've seen people write on planes. I'm not able to write yeah. on a plane. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Yeah. Um, I mean, but but your writing is quite a political act, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you talk about wanting to give humanity to yes. people who are not normally ascribed that. Yes. And just there's a lot of anger and sort of right, like righteousness yeah. within the work. Yeah. Um, just to just talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, the part of the reason that I feel th that way about my writing um, is because, you know, I grew up in a state and, and in a you know, and, and in a community where, you know, I, where, you know, like people like me and, you know, uh, you know, poor black people were like cons continuously like denied their humanity. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, you know, here I was in school with these kids who would, who would, you know, I wrote about it somewhat in Men We Reap, but who would like, you know, I mean, just say really 
crazy things to me and, and, and say crazy things about people like me. Um, you know, where they, I mean, all the, you know, the, all the new racist arguments, right, about, um, about, you know, black people being like genetically suited to playing football or basketball or, um, or, you know, or, um, you know, I mean, I just, or, you know, <laughs> I mean, I had just heard all sorts of things, right? Like people like calling us Scoobies because, you know, because they, because like dogs, right? Like that was their like slang term for black people. Scoobies. Yes, yeah, Scoobies. Um, you know, I mean, I just heard all, you know, like pe- people having conversations and saying that they would like never, you know, that they, they could never imagine themselves kissing a black person because it was evidently, I guess it's like the most disgusting thing ever. Like in there, I mean, you know, and these were just some of the kids that, that here, you know, that I was like in high school with who would say things like this and say them both in front of me, but then also say them in situations where they knew that then I would hear, hear about them. Um, you know, so I, and then on top of that, right? So then I grew up in a neighborhood that, um, you know, for many years did not have a public park. That for, you know, for many, for that for like the beginning of my, you know, I think they paved the road that I lived, that I lived on or that my mom, you know, now still lives on. I think they paved that road when I was like 15 or mm. something. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, you know, a, a kind of place that's like starved for resources. Right. And I could tell even from then that nobody cared about us. You know what I'm saying? Like in, in the larger scheme, I mean, what I saw um, in the larger world definitely seemed like an echo, right, of what I was experiencing in school with mm. these kids, right? So it's like the personal racism that I was experiencing was in the, echoed in the wider world when I was sort of realizing, you know, the ways that there were like entire systems set up to help us fail. You know what I'm saying? Yes. To like handicap us. Yes. Um, so... So I think that I just saw so much of that when I was growing up. Um, not to mention, right, the Confederate flags everywhere, right? Confederate flags still on the Mississippi State flag, right? Yeah. All the, you know, our, so our community colleges, um, you know, one of the, the closest campus to us, I think it's in Biloxi. And what is it called? Jefferson Davis Community College, right? Um, you know, in high school, like where they're taking us on these, uh, trips to Beauvoir, right? What is Beauvoir? Beauvoir is the White House of the Confederacy, right? And it's in Biloxi, right? So we're touring this like grand house and the tour guide is going on and on about the architecture and the, you know, there are these, these displays of with that feature like the women's clothing of the time, right? So these like, you know, big antebellum dresses and fancy, you know, ball gowns and and um, nobody's saying anything about the Confederacy or slavery or any of that, you know. And then we look back, <laughs> you know, sort of out of the main house and and there are the slave quarters, you know. And then a little further back, there's this huge Confederate, you know, like there's a huge um, graveyard of like Confederate soldiers. Now that we visited, I don't even think that we visited the, the quarters. slave quarters, and I don't think that anything like I don't remember anything really being said 
about them. So there was this whole, um, you know, so then, so on top of everything else, right, then I'm like beginning to understand that, that this is, that I am, that my people are a part of this history, you know what I'm saying? And, and, but that, that history in some ways has been erased. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm beginning to understand that, you know, when I was in high school. So I feel like all, I bring all of that to writing. Mm. Um, and I think that that, like, I, like all of that is what I think fuels me um, in some sense to write about the people that I write about, um, to write about the place that I write about, to, um, you know, to, tr- to, to try to, it fuels me to like attempt to like make my work, make my characters as real um, and as human and as complicated as I can make them. Because I remember like when I was starting out writing, I remember that I wanted, that I wanted the kind of kids that I went to school with to read my writing and to see me and the people I loved and the people I was writing about as human beings. Like I remembered like articulating that to myself. That was your audience, those mm-hmm. racist yeah. kids yeah. to speak back to them. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Are you still writing for them? Um, I'm, I, I, I don't know if I'm writing for them specifically, but, but I think in some ways, um, I don't know. Like, I think, I mean, that's something that I still want to accomplish in my work. Like, I still want to, like I said, like add, okay. I just, I spoke with, I asked, I spoke to, I recently um, spoke to Ava DuVernay because I'm doing a profile, which I have not completed on her. Yeah. And so I kept asking her about like human, yeah, exactly. About like, if she's, if that's what she's doing, is she like humanizing her? characters and I think because the reason one of the reasons I kept asking her that is because um at the end of 13th right the documentary that she directed one of the um I think it's Van Jones says something like the opposite of criminalization is humanization right and so so I kept asking her about that and then um about whether or not she was trying to that's what she was trying to do with her work and then she she responded to me and she said well you know I really feel like like uh like if we like if the argument like if we talk about my work in those terms right that 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 is approaching it from like a white gaze i guess right because that means you know that the that humanity is something that's denied it's not granted right she was like so my work assumes the humanity of the people that i that i am you know that i'm making movies about so I feel like, so she says she feels like her job is to add dimension, always add dimension. And so I'm trying to think, I think, so I'm trying to think about my work in that way, right? Because I think that was, that was really smart, right? Um, and so, you know, so I'm still trying to, I feel like I'm trying to do that. Like I'm trying to make the people that I'm writing about as like complicated and as real as possible. If it means that, you know, that some, you know, the person that has backwards ideas about black people encounters my work in some way. Maybe they pick up the Oxford American and they read a, you know, they read it a snippet from my novel. And if it means that they read this snippet and it then makes them see people like me as human beings, then that's a good thing. But I don't, I don't know if I'm, uh, I don't know if I'm necessarily writing just for, you know, the kids that I went to went to school with anymore. 
So when you win the National Book Award mm -hmm. and it changes your career, <laughs> yeah. right, for Salvage the Bones, mm -hmm. does that, going forward from there, does it bestow a certain freedom to where people are like, well, if the National Book Award winner made that choice, then mm -hmm. it must be right? Hmm. Or does it does it sort of lump a ton of pressure and responsibility on you? Like, well, you got to this level with that book, but the next book start, you know, with a blank page. Let's let's see what you do this time. Exactly. It's the second. Yeah, <laughs> no second. freedom is added. Mm -mm. I mean, I would think you, you know, I mean, when you call your editor and you're like, I want to write. Yes, go. Well, Here's some money. Go do is, it. I guess there is that. Right. It, it did make, um, you know, it did make uh, getting an, a, another, you know, book deal for a novel, you know, after Salvage, it did make that easier, right? I didn't have to come to the table with so much, you know. I came to the table with basically, you know, basically a book, you know, a book proposal. I might have had a rough first draft, but I definitely, like, when I bought Salvage to, you know, my editor and when she, I mean, my agent, and when she began, like, shopping it around to different publishing houses, like, I, that was a completed manuscript, that had been even been revised a little bit, right? And so I guess there there is that that freedom, right? That you don't necessarily have to bring the entire book, right? You're able to bring a little less, um, but yeah, you're able to bring a little less. And I think that that, in some sense, like when you do win a national book award, then I think that that does make publishing companies like more excited, you know, about getting you and getting your work and, and seeing exactly what, you know, the but next you, book will be. But you but, don't feel that. You just feel more pressure. Yeah, I feel more pressure because, of course, I'm thinking about my about the audience, right? So the audience that Salvage the Bones found after it won the National Book Award, I'm thinking about that audience. I'm thinking about, you know, what they want or what they expect or, you know, or, and I'm wondering if I'm going to be able to deliver what they want or what they expect. But I think that that was really crippling for me. And, and um and I remember talking with actually with Nikki Finney again about it. And she was telling me, you know, Nikki Finney is the poet that won the NBA for poetry the same year that I won the NBA for fiction. And I remember her saying, you just have to forget about all of that. Right. And you and the thing that you have to remember, the thing you have to embrace when you're writing is the feeling that brought you to writing in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever that emotion is that you feel when you sit down and you begin to write, like she was like, that's what you need to remember because that is what got you here, right? So... Do you write with a long form, with a pen or at the computer? I In the past, I, I wrote long form. Like I said, I, you know, <laughs> for years, um, I wrote long form. Even when I was in New York and, I, you know, I, I was living here and, and trying to... Uh, you know, I was reading a lot and trying to become, you know, taking those beginning steps, you know, writing short fiction and trying to become a, a you know, get a short story together that I could use to apply for MFA programs. I was doing all that longhand. But then when I went to college and I got my first, when I went to actually graduate school and got my first personal computer, then that changed. Then I began, it's like I had to learn how to type. <laughs> Do you enjoy like the moment of being at the computer and revising and lurking for words. Okay. And so in the first draft, the rough draft, I do not enjoy it. Or I, I don't enjoy, I don't enjoy writing. I'd say probably the first half of the, of the rough draft. I do not enjoy it because it's so hard. It's so hard to like, to find the right place to begin to, um, 
to find some direction, to gain some momentum, right? But I feel like once I, I feel like once I get halfway through a rough draft, then I hit this, I hit this sweet spot where I know enough about my characters and about the story that I'm telling at that point. And and then suddenly I get to that point to where I know enough so they don't have to struggle anymore. It doesn't feel like a struggle when I sit down. Then I think, you know, after that halfway point, then I be, really begin to enjoy it. And then I especially enjoy it. I enjoy it even more so when I'm revising. I really do. I know some people hate it, but I love it because I feel like, oh, yes. So I have something to work with. I just feel so much pressure when I don't have anything to work with that I, you know, that I think that that makes me, that makes like, you know, the the later stages of the process of writing. When I'm, when I'm writing like the last half of a rough draft and then revising, like that makes that better for me. So when I was in graduate school, um, for creative writing, one of the things that we would do is the professor would take a paragraph or a sentence, and I'm sure you do this with your students, um, and he would go through with a fine-tooth comb mm-hmm. all the choices that the writer had made and mm-hmm. why the writer begins with this word and mm-hmm. ends with this word and look at the shape of the sentence and mm-hmm. look at how he or she does it. So I want to see if we can do that mm-hmm. with a sentence or a paragraph mm-hmm. of yours. There's a paragraph in Men We've Reaped, mm-hmm. Um, that comes at the end, toward the end of the introduction mm-hmm. um, that I want to ask you to read. Okay. And then just as granularly as you can for the writers who are listening and who love you, like mm-hmm. just why you made some of the choices you made. And, and this paragraph I pulled out because it's beautiful and it's powerful mm-hmm. Um, and it's a it's a real building block of the book. It really sets the intention of why I wrote this book. Okay. So it so it has a lot of importance. Okay. Um, so this here, if you could please. Okay. From two thousand to two thousand four, five black young men I grew up with died all violently in seemingly unrelated deaths. The first was my brother Joshua in October two thousand. The second was Ronald in December two thousand two. The third was CJ in January two thousand four. The fourth was Damon in February two thousand four. The last was Roger in June two thousand four. That's a brutal list in its immediacy and in and its relentlessness. And it's a list that silences people. It silenced me for a long time. To say this is difficult is understatement. Telling this story is the hardest thing I've ever done. But my ghosts were once people, and I cannot forget that. I cannot forget that when I'm walking the streets of DeLille, streets that seem even bare since Katrina, streets that seem even more empty since all these deaths, where instead of hearing my friends or my brother playing music from their cars at the Connie Park, the only sound I hear is a tortured parrot that one of my cousins owns, a parrot that screams so loudly it sounds through the neighborhood, a scream like a wounded child from a cage so small the parrot's crest barely clears the top of the cage while its tail brushes the bottom. Sometimes when that parrot screams, sounding its rage and grief, I wonder at my neighborhood silence. I wonder why silence is the sound of our subsumed rage, our accumulated grief. I decide this is not right, that I must give voice to this story. So, let's unpack. Um, I Such felt... A <laughs> um, you know, this is... So, uh, what I was aiming... One of the first things that I was aiming to accomplish in this paragraph um, that comes sort of like at the end of the introduction was that I needed to tell the reader why I was writing the book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I needed to be very clear about the um, 
order of events. So like the order in which, you know, the young men that I knew, the order in which they they died, right? Um, and I needed to, um, I guess, then say a little in that paragraph about how, about, you know, how their deaths sort of impacted me, right? And the grief that I sort of was carrying with me, right? Um, Because then I knew that I wanted to end the entire, you know, intro by then um, saying, okay, so now that I've told you that this is the story that I want to tell, this is how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it in in an unfamiliar fashion because the structure of this book isn't... um, it's not very straightforward, right? So I'm moving back and forth in time, right? It's, there's almost, there are basically two different timelines, right? So there's, um, you know, I, I write about um, my life and my family and growing up, you know, in Delil and in Pas And, but then I cut, I, I sort of uh, leave, you know, I write one chapter on that and then I write about, the deaths of, you know, my, my brother and my friends, but it's, it's, it's almost as if I am, you know, I'm, uh, let's see, I'm beginning in the past, right? Right. I I begin, I, you know, I write about my birth, right. And I move forward through my childhood. And then, so there's one chapter here and then here's another chapter here with the last of my friends who died, right? Mm-hmm. And then I go back and here's, a, you know, a chapter when I'm a kid and then I go back to the future and here's a chapter about, you know, the the next to last young man who died. Did you know and this? So I meet in the middle. Did you know this structure when you were writing that paragraph? Mm-hmm. You, you had a, structurally, you knew what the book would look yes. like. And because I knew that, that, the stru- that the book would be structured in a way so that the end of the book is when these two li- timelines meet, and here, we're at the moment where my, where my brother dies, right? So this is the moment of, of of greatest impact for me, right? So this is the moment, you know, where of greatest pain for me. I knew I, I really, I, it was important to me to end at that moment. So because I knew I had this weird structure, right, where I'm doing this and then I end here, I needed to be very clear in the introduction um, about the order, you know, that the young men died in, right? And then, um, and, and then also I needed to be clear about, you know, about like the actual structure. So the paragraph after the one I read is all about the structure in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the reason that at the beginning of this paragraph that I just read, that I begin, you know, with that sentence, right? Where I where I put the I place the reader. Um, in time, right, from 2000 to 2004, this is when, you know, five black young men, here again, like, I know in, in those lines, I'm sort of like reducing them, right, because they're just, you know, black young men, right, and I don't immediately name them, but I almost feel like I had to ease the reader into the narrative, right, so that's why um, I just say five black young men I grew up with died, and then I say all violently, right, because they were they were all violent in different ways, right? Um, in seemingly unrelated deaths, because and the reason that I use that phrase is because I knew at that point that one of the questions that I had about 
the story that I was telling was I was just trying to figure out why why an epidemic of young black die, of young black men dying would happen in the kind of place where I'm from, right? So this is like small, sleepy town on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. It doesn't seem to make sense that all these young black men from this really small community would just be dying left and right, right? But I but but I feel like intuitively, maybe at the beginning of this, I knew that there was something, you know, there's something tying them all together, right? I didn't know what it was yet. Um but I, but I felt like part of what I would part of what I would have to do in the book was I have to write my way towards an answer, right? And attempt to like answer that question, right, about what tied them all together. Um, and then so then it was important to me again to let the reader know the order in which they died and who each man was to me in in some respects, right? So that's why I say the first was my brother Joshua in October two thousand. The second was Ronald in December 2002. The third was CJ in January 2004, right? And then on to Damon and on to Raj in June 2004, Roger in June 2004. The reason that I wanted to make each of those sentences short declarative sentences is because I wanted them to be like, like blows, right? Here's a blow, here's a blow, here's a blow, here's a blow. And I felt like those short declarative sentences, one after another, right? this one died, this one died, this one died, this one died. Like that would, hopefully that would affect the reader like a blow, and right? short, clear yes. words within that. Yes. So it gets like almost into the subconscious. Yes, yes. immediately, right? Um, and then, but then I felt like, you know, after here, after I, you know, I, after I listed, you know, after I, after I wrote that list, I thought... I don't want I don't want it to seem cold, right? The fact that here I just threw it out here in this list, right? I want the reader to understand that that um, you know that this that that this is a horrible right that this is a horrible thing, like all this loss and all this grief, and so I felt like I had to comment on it. So that's why I then proceeded to the next sentence and, and commented on the fact that that it is a brutal list, right? in its immediacy and its relentlessness, right? And it's a list that silences people. Um, I, uh, you know, that's something that I was struggling with at the beginning of the book, right? In part because, um, in, in part because I was like looking back um, during the, the time when all this was happening, right? And I realized that, that when, that once, that at, once Raj died and then Hurricane Katrina happened, that I didn't write anything for a long time, you know, for me for a long time. It was a couple of years before I actually picked up a pen and started to try to write again, you know. Um, and, and and I think in part, you know, I was just so shell-shocked by what had happened that I couldn't write anything. Um, and, and, and when I thought about those events, I realized that they had, in fact, silent, silenced me. And then I think part of what I'm doing, like in the in the rest of the paragraph, right? Because then there's a lot of repetition, right? So once I use the word silence once, then I use it again in the next sentence, right? Almost to like punctuate that idea again, right? Um, and. And then I begin to talk about that silence. I begin to talk about how it's so hard for me to push back against that silence and to tell, um, to tell this, 
this story, right? But again, I'm still doing this and I'm still at, by the middle of the paragraph, I'm still using like fairly short sentences, although I am using a lot of words that begin with S. And maybe maybe the part of the reason that I'm doing that, um, you know, I'm using words like silence, like story, like say, right? The, the S sound is repeating again and again. And I think part of the reason that I was doing that is because I'm trying to begin I'm trying to begin a rhythm, right? Because I know that when I begin to talk about the grief that I feel, right? And and that the and that the the young men I knew were once people and that I can't forget that and that now after Katrina, like I that I'm really you know even more aware of that, right? Um I knew then that th- that that next sentence that that sentence that ends that paragraph that long sentence that goes on and on and on and on i knew that sentence would definitely have a very quick rhythm you know like this sort of this quick um sort of galloping rhythm right and and there would be some sort of momentum there and i feel like that that sentence that long sentence almost makes the reader feel perhaps maybe even a sense of dread, right? I mean, because it seems like we're rushing towards something that, you know, that the end result, right, is this horrible image of this parrot that's too large for the cage that it's kept in. And then you could tell that the animal is in distress, right? So basically this tortured parrot that my aunt keeps, you know, like on her porch that has to live out the rest of his days confined to this, you know, this horrible cage, um, so yeah, so I think that, that, that's one of those, re- that's one of the reasons that, um, that I'm using so many words that. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials and getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamin a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. That either begin with S or have an S somewhere in them because I, it's almost like I want to sort of push the reader towards this, you know, this sentence that will then gallop, right? So I'm like preparing the reader to enter this sentence that's going to, that has this like rocking rhythm um, that leads to the end of the, the end of the paragraph, 
And then again, you know, those S words continue to repeat throughout that long sentence too, right? Screams, sounds, then I, then the screams, repeats, right? Streets, right? And you hear that they, that a lot of these words too are rhyming, right? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. again, that is also, I think, affecting like the rhythm, right? And, and I think aiding that sense of rhythm that we're getting as we're like rushing forward in this, uh, in this sentence. Um, and then I end with an S word, right? I end with the word story, right? Mm, because to, that's what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> to complete the pattern. Yeah. And let's do it one more time okay. with a sentence uh, that is extremely long and powerful. Okay. Um, and you are telling the story of the moment that your dad, that you're, that you're, you're telling the story of the moment that your brother mm-hmm. is killed. Yeah. And it's a fairly beautiful sentence Mm -hmm. and it envelops sort of all this history. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting choice to have this sort of beautiful writerly sentence as you're driving toward. And then my brother Mm -hmm. died in this horrific Mm -hmm. way. Um, Tell us about, please read and tell us about this sentence. Okay. Um, so I'm, so this, this sentence starts in the middle of the paragraph, um, at the bottom of page 230. Um, the beginning of that paragraph begins with my brother leaving his job, um, and then taking, uh, the, the beach home, right? Highway 90, which, uh, which sort of follows the, the, the Gulf, right? The beach along the Gulf of Mexico, um, so the sentence is, and I'm, and I'm imagining what that must have been like for him, like what that last drive must have been like for him. So it begins that the air swooped down from the North and was unseasonably cool for October. So when Josh walked out of work and started his car, he rubbed his arms and said, I love this shit. Love the chill air on the down that wouldn't turn to beard on his cheeks. Love that he could look out of his window and see an open horizon over the water, where the waves from the gulf quietly lapped the shore, where the oak trees in the median stood witness over centuries to wars, to men enslaving one another, to hurricanes, to Joshua riding along the coast, blasting some rap, heavy bass, ignorant beats, lyrical poetry to the sky, to the antebellum mansions our mother cleaned and whose beauty we admired and hated. So I think... um. It was, I think because I've, because I have wondered about, about the, you know, the minutes before he died, I think that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write this sentence. Um, And, and also I, it was important for me to put the reader in the car with my brother as he's taking this last drive that he doesn't know is his last drive. Um, and so it was, and so in, in order to do that, right. In order to accomplish that, right. I, th- I had to create a sensory experience, right. For the reader so that they felt like they were right there. Right. I had to introduce these sensory details into, um, you know, in, into 
So we get the sound of yeah, the music. Yeah, so we get the sound get of the, the music. The, we see the trees. We yes. feel the wind. Exactly. And, we feel the chill in the air. We can, you know, see the the down on his cheeks. We can look out the window with him and see that horizon over the water. See those waves. See those oak trees, right? See those those houses. You know, hear that beat. All of it. He's he's and you give us his feeling. He's happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love this shit. Yeah, but there's all this pain going mm-hmm. on because when you bring in the history of this little world, yeah. it's all pain. Yeah. right? The, the slaves. Yeah, the, I mean, like the 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 cleaning of yeah. the houses that you hated. Yeah. like I mean, yeah. th- that's a really interesting. It's not a diversion, mm-hmm. but it, it's sort of like an expansion mm-hmm. of the lens. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, that's a really uh, amazing moment in mm-hmm. that sentence. I think that the reason that I wanted to end that sentence with, with that, right, with the reference to the to the oak trees. I mean, because, I mean, one because it's the truth, and that's so amazing to me, right? That these trees have been there for so long, and they're so old that they have, you know, witnessed so much in human history, right? And that they have witnessed, I mean, you know, when we were enslaved, when we were, you know, when we arrived in boats, right? There on our way to New Orleans to be sold and parceled out. Like, that's amazing to me. Um, And so I think that I I wanted to reference that. I wanted to, um, I wanted, I want the, I want the reader to be aware that at the same time that that you know that my brother was alive in the present moment he's still living in a world where where the past is bearing down on him constantly because of who he is and because of where he comes from you know what i'm saying because he's a young black man right and so i think in some ways you know the end of that sentence is like yet another way of me attempting to write my way toward an answer for that question that I asked at the beginning of the book, right? Why would this happen? Why did he die? You know what I'm saying? Like why, why? Um, and so I think that again, like I I had to 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 you know flat you know introduce this flash of history into this world you know, at that end of that sentence, because, because the, because the reader has to be aware of it, even if perhaps my brother was not like, you know, consciously, you know, sort of thinking about wars and slaves and all those things when he was riding down the highway 90. Sure. Mm-hmm. He, he was not. But yeah. It's yeah. But it's there. Exactly. And, and right. And he would not be there yeah. if not for. Exactly. Um, what, um, what books do you suggest people read beside your own in, in ter- <laughs> if they want to learn to be better writers? You know, a book that I read while I was a Stegner fellow that I actually use in all of my creative writing courses. Well, all, nearly all of them. Um, and this may be, you know, like, I don't know, like a boring answer. But if you, if you are looking for craft guides and craft guides can be useful. Yes, you know, when you're learning absolutely. to be a writer. Um, I love The Making of a Story by Alice LaPlante. The Making of the a Story. The Making of a Story. That's what it's called. It's by a writer named Alice LaPlante. And it is um, really exceptional. And I agree with almost everything that she um, says about craft, about, uh, you know, how to construct a story, about 
like the craft issues that you should be thinking about while, you know, you're constructing a story, um, you know, she, cause she, because she starts the book and she just talks about like, she begins by talking about detail. Like the way that she begins is so different from most craft guides that I've read because she begins by talking about detail and by talking and by saying that she thinks that like the best writing um, is, is, is rendered um, in, in vivid detail. Like the, the best writing has vivid details and, and sort of that's the, um, I guess, the bedrock of, of good writing because if you can't make a world vivid and, um, you know, and real for a reader, right. then you're not going to hold the reader's attention. You know what I'm saying? Like if you can't create an immersive experience for a reader, um, then, you know, then, you, I mean, you're not doing such a great job in some <laughs> ways. Right. And, um, yeah. And then she, uh, you know, and then she goes through sort of each of like the craft elements, right? So she talks about character. She talks about place. She talks about, you know, na- balancing narration and scene. She talks about dialogue, right? So all those things that other craft guides hit, hit she hits them too, right? And, um, and, and, and just uses like very like straightforward language, right? Um, which I also appreciate, right? And she has tons of writing exercises at the end of each section, um, and these writing exercises will hopefully like help the the students to understand whatever you know craft issue the previous chapter was about, um, and and like incorporate you know whatever lessons they learned in that chapter into into their work. And then I think too the writing exercises are good are good because because they um you know they can I think that often writing ex- exercises can be like the seed of some really great work you know mm-hmm. so so yeah I really like that book. Um, and then I think in general, like, I think that, I mean, it depends on what you're trying to write, right? It depends on what you're trying to write and it depends on, so by that, I mean, you know, if you want to be a romance writer, you need to read a ton of romance books, right? If you want to be a urban fantasy writer, you need to read a ton of urban fantasy. If you want to be, um, part of what you're driving toward here mm-hmm. is you cannot be a good writer without, without being, reading without, no, right, exactly. without being a good reader. Exactly. Right. Without being a good reader. So, I mean, in that respect, like I think, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to write literary fiction. So in addition to reading everything else, right. Because I think that you can learn how to write a, you can learn something about storytelling from every genre, you know what I'm saying? Sure. And yes. so, so I read, read widely, but I think that, you know, that I had to, read literary fiction and specifically read literary fiction, read black literary fiction, read Southern literary fiction, read literary fiction by women, right? Read literary fiction by black Southern women, right? So I I, I had to um, read the kind of writing that I was hoping to write, read the kind of stories that I was hoping to tell because I needed models. You know, I needed to figure out what I liked, what I didn't like, you know, in, in the in the kinds of stories that I wanted to, wanted to write. And then I think that I, you know, then had to begin to try to like incorporate the lessons that I learned from those books into my. And and when you talk about black literary fiction, you're talking about Toni Morrison, you're talking about James Baldwin, you're talking about. I'm talking about Alice Walker. I'm talking about Margaret Walker. I'm talking about. Zadie Smith. Yep. Zadie Smith. Um, who else? Gloria, what's her last name? Naylor. Naylor. Yes, Gloria Naylor. I'm talking about... Um, Zora Neale Hurston. Yeah, Zora Neale Hurston. Um, Ralph Ellison. Yes, Ralph Ellison. Yes, there's, you know, like, did I already say Richard Wright? 
Or did you say so. Richard Wright? No, Richard I didn't. Wright. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just, uh, yes. I mean, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to read the kind of stuff that you want to write because you have to see what's been done. You know, you have to see like, you have to figure out like what is worth emulating. I think uh, what is worth imitating because we do we imitate. I think. I almost feel like you know, for me, the reading process in the realms that I wanted to be in, mm-hmm. each book would be like turning on a light mm-hmm. in a dark room mm-hmm. and start to be able to see, oh, these are the things that can be accomplished in yep. this room. Mm-hmm. And if I hadn't turned on enough lights, then I couldn't see enough of what was possible. Exactly. And I may or may not copy, mm-hmm. mimic, whatever, mm-hmm. what the next person did, mm-hmm. but I didn't know what we could do yep. until I had turned on a bunch of the lights in the room. Yeah, exactly. 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 Like, I think part of the reason why I attempt to write such long sentences is because of Faulkner. Mm. Right? Because, I, I mean, he's like the, you know, he's like the king of long sentences, right? And the long sentence is a really powerful uh, tool for the writer. Yes. Can be overused yes. and overwrought. And so how? where is the balance between the powerful long sentence that does not become a self caricature mm-hmm. and draw attention to, mm-hmm. wow, this is a really long sentence, mm-hmm. which means I'm not actually immersed anymore. I think I, I attempt to save the long sentence for mom, for moments of great impact. Right. Right. So it, like in the, in the two sections that I read from, right. I mean, some of those are really long sentences and they were the moments of greatest, you know, of great impact. Right. right. Um, so yeah, so I try to save the long sentence for moments of great, great impact. Right, and and so then it it amplifies mm-hmm. the effect. Yes. Um, we talked briefly at your reading, mm-hmm. and it was really valuable about great beginnings. Yes. And I think for a lot of writers, they're like, um, you know, how do I start, mm-hmm. and how do I know I have a beginning that will allow me to get that traction mm-hmm. to be able to keep going. Mm-hmm. So. What is a great beginning? What should writers be looking for? Hmm. Um, I mean, you know, like the, uh, I think that the best beginnings um, are, or, or depict, depict the moment that has great import mm-hmm. for the characters, right? And perhaps th- that beginning sort of signals what the chief concerns of the novel might be, like the chief thematic concerns of the novel, like what those might be. But of course it has to do that in uh, by, by in like very real concrete ways, right? It has to do that by putting the reader in a place with the characters in a specific scene. And so I think that that is what is very difficult about writing a good beginning for me, because that scene has to do so much. It ha- I mean, it has such weight on it because it has to signal, like, I think what the heart of the novel is or what the heart of the novel might be, right? Mm-hmm. So that in some ways you're sort of, you're priming the reader for what will come, right? Um, and for me, you know, so say with like with Sing, right? That moment was 
a moment where, you know, where Jojo, this 13-year-old kid, is, is following his grandfather out to this shed where he's going to slaughter a goat, you know, in honor of the 13-year-old kid, in honor of Jojo's birthday, right? And so here, and, and then they get out to that shed and then the slaughtering commences, right? So then, so not only, you know, is this a story about, um, is this a story, is it in some ways is a coming of age story? You know, it's a story about a, a young man um, attempting to sort of navigate the world by like following, you know, like his, his grandfather. But it's also um, a story about death, right? Mm. A story about, um, about the things that die and also those that witness the dying. You know what I'm saying? And, and all of that had to, I had to, all of that, um, you know, it was right. When, once I wrote that beginning, I was like, okay. That's right, right? Because this is what, in part, what this book is going to be about, right? I mean, this book is going to be, it's, it's a coming of age. It's about, you know, him sort of following his pop, but it's also about, you know, death and, you know, those that die and those that witness. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, that's why I think beginnings are super hard for so many people because, you know, it's difficult to find that moment, you know? And I, but I'm, the, I know some writers who don't, they don't nail down that first moment. They just, they find another place to enter the story and they sort of work around the beginning, right? And they maybe they write the beginning towards the end. I cannot do that. You go beginning to end. I have to go beginning to end because I don't know. I, I maybe, and maybe the reason that I can't do that is because most of the time I have no idea what's, I'm not a plotter, right? So I don't plot, you know, the, the what will happen in the entire novel. You know, I, I don't know all that from the beginning, um, and so I think for me, maybe that's why beginnings are really important because that's how I find my way in by finding the right beginning. That's how I find my way into the story that follows versus other people who plot from the beginning. Like they already know, you know, like where it's going and what's going to happen. So you don't have to do that. change. Yeah. But I don't, yeah. I, no, you don't, you don't have to do that. I want to do the sentence deconstruction one more time, mm-hmm. but with something simpler and yet more complex. Okay. The first sentence of Salvage the Bones, China's turned on herself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Why was that simple sentence, China's turned on herself? Why was that like, yes, that is my first sentence. Let's keep going. Um, Okay. One, I wanted to lead with the name China uh, because... You know, China's, uh, she's a very important character in this, in this novel. And of course she's like central to that first scene. Right. And, and, um, and so I wanted to lead with her, but I thought that it would be cool to lead with, with her without identifying her because it's sort of drawing for the reader. They're yeah, like, who are China, we talking about? who is China? And, and right? I assume first coming, it's a person. Exactly. But it's not. Exactly. And and I think that the verb turned then complicates that understanding, right, of who we are talking about, right? Because you don't, it's not as if it's like a clear action verb, right? Where it's very like clear what is happening. You don't really know. Um, so I, I think I wanted, I wanted it to be, 
a bit vague. Like I didn't say China's, you know, attacking herself or China's, um, you know, or China is, uh, I don't know, curled in on herself, right? Like I didn't say any of those things. Right, it doesn't complete. I don't know what turned means. Is it literal, figurative? Exactly. So the vagueness brings me as a reader in? Exactly. And then I feel like um, I needed to end with on herself because... Because here's another reason why I want to use the word turn, because I'm talking about a pit bull, right? And so part of like the conversation around pit bulls is that they, you know, they they can turn on you, they will attack you, you know, they're 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 understood as being like very vicious, right? And so I think that's another reason why I wanted to use the word turn um, or turned on, right? Um, and then I wanted to end with the word herself because I wanted to signal that this is you know, it might be a girl, right? It might be a woman, um, but it is at least a female, right? And um, and because so much of what follows, right, the novel is concerned with what it is to be, what it is to be female, what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a mother, right? And um, and and the ways, you know, that 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 the way the the ways, I guess, that you sort of the ways that you are empowered and the ways that you are disempowered. You know what I'm saying? Like I wanted to signal from the very beginning, from that first line that we're talking about women here or we're talking about, you know, female animals. I mean, reading the first graph, I'm kind of like, okay, I'm trying to figure out what's going on Mm -hmm. following you. And then the second graph, Mm -hmm. when you start talking about, you know, humans Mm -hmm. giving birth Mm -hmm. and you're, and it, from the first sentence, it immediately takes on this propulsive dynamic energy. It's like it starts going mm-hmm. in light speed. And I'm sorry. I was like, wow, it reminds me of Toni Morrison. Oh. <laughs> and like, I I mean, you know, and that name gets thrown around, around you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is it is it too much? Yeah, it's too much. <laughs> like, I don't even want to hear anybody say that. Just please keep that stop, to yourself. Stop, stop please. I mean, this woman, you know, I mean, she's a legend, right? She won the damn Nobel Prize. Like, I, I, I don't, yeah. It, it's, it's too much. It is. It's too much. <laughs> and I mean, that that's not for you. That's for us yes. to read yes. and make the comparisons mm-hmm. and, um, um, uh, one more thing that doesn't necessarily have to do with writing, but it is central to so much of your writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you were up in the middle of Katrina. Mm-hmm. You were in Mississippi, yeah. right? Yep. Right. Everyone talked about Louisiana, but yeah. Mississippi got it hard too. Yes. Um, I mean, can you talk about what happened to mm-hmm. you in those days? Yeah. I mean, Katrina was a uh, the experience of the storm that people had in Mississippi and coastal Mississippi was very different. Coastal Mississippi and also, um, you know, coastal Alabama too, but really coastal Mississippi is very different from the experience that people had of the, of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, because New Orleans was a man-made disaster, right? Because of the levees, right? And, um, but, 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 you know, the experience that people had of Katrina in Mississippi, I mean, that was the, the wind is so powerful that it rips the landscape away. So by that, I mean, it pulls, the, it rips the trees from the earth. It breaks them in half, right? It, um, it 
begins to pull apart houses, right? It pulls off pieces of your roof. It collapses walls. It And so on top of all the, that wind damage, right, then the wind pushes in water, right? So it pushes in a storm surge. So this isn't just... This isn't like a gradual flooding, right? This is, in some places, a very violent, intense flooding, right? I mean, this water is rushing in because it's being pushed by 100-mile-per-hour winds. And um, the scientists uh, who I met when I was working at a school in Alabama once said to me... um, he was talking about the force of water and he was saying how, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he was saying like how, um, how people underestimate the force of water um, and how he, he was making some comparison to like an atomic bomb, you know, and there were numbers involved, but he was basically saying that water is a very powerful force. Um, and, and our experience of the storm at home, like, you know, that's what we were contending with, where we were contending with with water that rose very quickly, that had a lot of force to it, you know, that um, that in some places, even in my hometown in DeLille, like completely submerged houses, it picked up houses and pushed them off of them their foundations and deposited them elsewhere, picked up, uh, you know, sometimes it, it deposited those, that water, the combination of the water and the wind, like my friend came home. She lived in Pascochan. She came home to her house. She said, yeah, there are four houses on top of our house. Just like bop, 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 bop. When we went to, um, me and my friends went to uh, Pascochan. We went into Pascochan from DeLille, my hometown, on the day after the hurricane. And we, we, you know, we drove as far as we can. And then we had to walk because the streets were completely covered with trees and houses and um and in some cases, uh, you know, 18-wheeler, the truck beds had been tossed, right, and, and, and deposited elsewhere, right, deposited in the middle of the road. We stood on the train tracks, you know, where we can see east to west in, in Pascrishan, and there are houses, like, dotting the train tracks, like it was like, a, like there were beads on a necklace this way, that way. In Gulfport, they used to have, um, we used to, when casinos were first introduced to the Mississippi Gulf Coast, they had to be on barges out in the water, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you'd have this entire building, four stories, right? Building on a, built on a barge, right? And that people would walk down, you know, this fancy entranceway to get on um, and to gamble. That, one of the casinos on the barge in Gulfport, was swept into downtown and flipped and deposited on like the roof. You know what I'm saying? Like deposited in the middle of the highway wow. on the roof. Like that, it's just a very different, I mean, and that's a hurricane. So it's just a very different experience of a storm when, you, when you're within, I don't, I don't know what that, if there's a term for that or what, right? When you're in that... Um, section of the storm where you're getting those hundred mile per hour winds, you know, when the, when the, uh, when the eye passes over you, the eye passed over us. It's the eeriest thing because suddenly all of it stops, you know, and you unclench 
but then you remember, wait, that just means we're halfway through, you know, like <laughs> it's going to come back. It's, it's coming, you know, and then it passes over you and then, then it's all back, you know? So, um, so yeah, it was, um, it was a horrible experience and, but I know that it's a danger, right? I know that as long as I choose to stay where I am, that it's an experience that I can go through again. I mean, as a writer, you have used so many of the horrible things that have happened to you mm-hmm. in very creatively productive ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, that's very inspiring. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I am. Um, I don't know. I I think that uh, I think that in some ways. In some ways, in order to understand the things that I have lived through, I have to write about them. Because I'm not so great about going to therapy like I should. And so, yeah, so I think that I have to write about these things, not to heal from them. People always ask me that question all the time. And they say, oh, you know, does, does, is, it, does, is it healing to write about? Well, no, was it healing to write about your brother's death? Is it healing to write about Katrina? And, um, and, and that's not the case. You know, it's, it's not that you heal it's just you, um, I think you understand a bit more and maybe perhaps that makes it easier to live with. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely think that was the case with my, you know, when I wrote Men We Reaped. Like that was the case when I wrote about my brother's death and my brother's life and my friend's deaths and my friend's lives. Like, like it made it, it's easier for me to live with their grief because I've written about them and because I feel like I understand a bit more than I understood before. I wrote about them. There's definitely lots of times when I'm like, I'm not sure how I feel about mm-hmm. X or what I really think yeah. about X. And there was a time when I felt like that was a barrier to begin writing. Mm-hmm. And when I stopped thinking of it that way, it's mm-hmm. like, well, I will figure it out. Yeah. I get mad when people are like, can you give me a complete detailed outline <laughs> of what you're going to say? I don't know what I'm going to say know. and feel until I get in exactly. there and start doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the way that I, you know, I, I know that most people don't approach fiction like that, but that's the way I approach fiction too. You know, I don't, and nonfiction, like I don't know what will happen. I'm constantly surprised all the time during the writing process. But uh, but um, I don't know. I feel like, at least for me, that 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 means that something is happening, you know, that there, that it's alive in some way, that the story has taken on a life and that, um, I don't know, that, that important things are, you know, that it's dynamic, I guess, um, if that happens. Well, you are a national treasure. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. Do you have, as one last piece, mm-hmm. do you have, what is your advice for writers who are listening? What should they do or not do? So uh, um, I apologize if you know people who are listening have heard this before, but I... I say this often and I say this because I believe it, but um, I think one of the most important things for writers to do is persist. Mm. Um, Because, you know, in, uh, you know, in publishing, you will face a lot of rejection. You know, if you're a writer and you're trying to get published, you're going to face a lot of rejection. How many houses rejected Salvage the Bones? I don't even remember, but it was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And it, was it a goes lot. on to win the National Book and yeah. it was done. Yeah. 
Yeah, like we had to like throw away the list, you know, and 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 start a whole new list of so other all, publishing houses that these, might accept it. All these brilliant editors mm-hmm. read this book. Yeah. That was eventually judged by far the best book of the year, mm-hmm. and they all missed it. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, you will, and 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 so that you know, that just goes to show, like, I mean, it, it doesn't mean that your work isn't good. It just means that this is a hard industry. It just means that, you know, that in some ways the deck might be stacked against you, especially if you are black or woman um, or, you know, or queer or, you know, whatever. If you're if you come from a marginalized community, that means the deck might be stacked, the deck might be stacked against you. But you have to persist um, because, you know, you can you will be rejected hundreds of times, right? But what is important is that you find the one person who will say yes to you. And 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 in order for that to happen, you have to persist, right? Um and you have to find that one person who will say yes and will open the door for you. Um so yeah, so that that is my advice. Just persist because you just need one yes. I mean, you had at one point you said um before you got the award. Mm-hmm. There's these characters that I love so deeply mm-hmm. and no one cares about them. Yeah. And I'm like, why did you persist at that point when you were getting no uh you know, no love, no return from the industry? And you're like, <laughs> and you kept on. I, well, I thought I at that time I was like, well, you know, maybe after, you know, maybe in like four books, you know, if 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 someone agrees to publish me four more times, maybe in like four books later, maybe, you know, more people will care because I'm just so dogged and I just keep putting these things out. Like maybe they will, you know, find readers because I put them out there. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think that that's part of what motivated me then. And then I guess I at that, at that point, like once Salvage was out in the world and before it won the NBA, I felt like I was at a point where I really I couldn't stop, you know, like this. I mean, I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't stop. I mean, I couldn't, you know, change course and decide to drop out and decide to go back to school to, you know, I don't know, be a physician's assistant or, you know what I'm saying? Like at that point I was so, I felt, it felt as if I was so, um, like I'd done so much to get to a certain point in my, in my like writing career that I couldn't, I couldn't change course then, even, even if I wasn't having the greatest success. At that moment, I was like, well, it's too late for me to do it, to go back now. <laughs> as an artist, that's so great, right? Yeah. Because yeah. I'm having this failure, but I am locked on this course yes. no matter what. Yes. And I'm just going to persist. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Well, we are, I am, we are so glad <laughs> that you did. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much to Jasmine for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, and Jason Reynolds. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Chanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday 
and on Friday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.